This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be with you for the next hour or so. I was away next week, super excited to be back, uh, as usual, chatting with you. And of course on Twitter, on at DMShowZA. Thanks for everybody who's already engaging with us there. Greg Nicholson, you flew solo last week. Thanks for holding it down. How are you doing? Yeah, I might have to apologize to the listeners. Um, I'm glad you're back. <laughs> I'm not sure being a guest or sort of co-hosting the yeah. show is much easier than when you have to sort of press all these buttons and try to run things on your own. So I'm very grateful for you returning to the studio. And you had the political weight of the country on your shoulders after the ANC conference and the SAC conf- SACP conference. Sorry, you had a lot on your mind, I assume. Yeah, well, I'm glad today that we're going to be talking about something other than the endless stream of allegations of corruption and state capture or politics. Absolutely. Um, I mean, as Greg has already alluded to, we want to do something a bit different. I mean, aside from the, the the hardcore political focus we usually do, and it's I suppose you say it always sounds like it's another corruption scandal sometimes, and we're always trying to get to the bottom of things. We want to do things a bit different, a bit more personal, and we want to talk about parenting, um, something we're loosely calling quote-unquote woke parenting, and I know there's baggage with the term woke, but bear with us for now. But basically, how do you how do you raise a child in 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 modern day society and modern day South Africa specifically? I mean, we talk a lot about all the issues around racism, racism, sorry, around sexism, about inequality. We have the weight and the baggage of of, of our national history, our continental history that we have to contend with and contextualize for our children. And then the day to day things that pop up, you know, something happens on TV, something happens at school, and then and, and how do you manage that? How do you explain that? So we have people who are a bit more qualified to talk about this than, than Greg and I are. So I'd love if we could just, you know, go around and introduce you and then you could contextualize us a bit about your household. Um, so a bit about your child and or children and sort of the parenting structure and then we'll go over from there. And maybe the listeners should know that neither Kingsley or myself are parents. So we don't have a whole lot of experience in any of these, this stuff. So. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. I like to think that we're still kids. So you're taking notes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, the, that's why we're doing this, actually. Okay. I mean, Leah, you already started. So okay. some of Leah Naidu, who's an activist, PhD student, with someone we've had on the show before, and, and I'm really glad to, to have back. How are you Hi. doing, Leah? I'm well, thank you. Cool. And hello to your listeners. So I'm in a same-sex partnership for the last 15 years, and my partner and I adopted our only child, Lerato. Uh, she's now eight years old, and she came to us when we were four and a, when she was four and a half months. Her entire life she's lived in Johannesburg, although uh, my, my partner and I have grown up in Cape Town. So that's just a snapshot. Yeah, I'm sure we'll dig a lot more into it. Next up, we have Koketsu Moeti, someone also we have on for more of the political stuff. Um, yeah, so I'm a single mother. I've got two kids, one boy, one girl. Girl is the firstborn. She's seven years old, and my son is five. Um, we stay in trouble. Joburg right now, but stayed in Twane before and Mafeking before then. Okay. You'll remember um, Koketsu as, a, as an activist, community mobilizer. She does a lot of writing also on this. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that you know all comes together. And last, we have Danai Mupotsa, somebody I haven't had on before, but I'm glad the time has finally come. I should say Dr. Danai, I'm sure. Um, doctorate uh, in African literature, if I'm not mistaken, lecturer at WITS, does a lot of writing, and yes, talk to us. Uh. Yeah, so, um, yes, I have a daughter. She's eight. Her name is Mika. And I co-parent with her dad, who is uh, an ex of mine, an ex-husband. Um, and she, so we have uh, shared custody and she, 
is great. <laughs> what more should I say at this point? Oh, yeah, okay. we'll, we'll hear more. I think you want to say that with a lot more confidence. She's wonderful. There we go. Yeah. She's definitely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> She's friends with Lerato. Wonderful. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I'm sure for everybody tuning in and, and trying to make sense of the panel, the first thought would be like, what's going on? There are no men in studio aside from Greg and I, representative, um, and, and representative of, you know, you know, white, a white family. And that's obviously something we're super conscious of. Um, did, did plan on having perhaps a more diverse and representative structure and it just didn't come together in time. So I think our view is really to say we've got really interesting and cool people here. Let's, let's use that and do that. Acknowledging that it could be, you know, more diverse and, you know, this is not the end of the conversation. We can, you know, we can continue this another time. After you guys should know, so after some of our plans for this show, some of the guests fell through. Um, Kingsley thought, oh, you know, it'd be cool to, cool to get a white dad in. You know, we'll see if, let's see how that works out in some of these sort of spaces. So he's asking me to message his just like white friends or people I know, men, and if they, because we don't really know that many people with kids, we're, you know, we just don't. <laughs> and, and so I'm just sending messages to just random guys being like, hey, weird question, but do you have a child? And turned out none of them did. So, <laughs> it's we're stuck here as the male representatives today. Okay. okay. Koketsu, you've done some writing on this, and I'd just love to start with you. Um, you, you mentioned in one of your blogs, um, around a time when your daughter was discovering colors, and, and she would have new favorite colors, and she would say, this is my favorite color, and she got a pretty weird response from that from people at school based on what color she would, she would describe as her favorite. Could you just talk a bit about that experience and what happened there? Um, yeah, so you can see, cause I have a boy and a girl mm. child, in the way people talk to them, you get a sense of just how differently boys and girls are treated, right? So my daughter's older than my son, and I remember many times my son would be asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my daughter's much, much older, isn't? She's told you're beautiful, you know? You notice those little differences. So my daughter, as she was learning colors in Kretsch, every new color, every week, she'd basically have a new favorite color. Mm. And there was a time when she just, yeah, blue was her favorite color. And yeah, the sense was, no, but that's a boy color. It's not for girls. Girls should only like this. And I think that strengthens your resolve, the idea that my child goes out there into a world in which this is what they are getting feedback on. So the way I see my home, the way I think of my home is it's a place that should prepare them for dealing with that kind of stuff. But at at the same time, it should be almost like a sanctuary, a safe space where it doesn't matter all of the things people say, even if they tease you afterwards, it doesn't matter. So we don't do that. For us, there's no such thing as this prescribed boy colors or prescribed girl colors, toys, clothes, none of that. Whatever you like works. Okay. Um, the night is coming to you. I'm curious as to whether with your daughter, there's a strong sense of you raising her as a girl and this means something or are you more perhaps more open to... I think when she was younger and there was certainly when you give birth and there's a child and they're like, Oh, a girl, Mm. people, there's, I think there was a lot more sort of color pressure for people, gifts. And, you know, so you ask people not to buy your child certain things and they still do. Um, and they think you're being offensive when you say no, thank you. So there was a lot more, um, I think I was a lot more anxious about the things that she was exposed to when okay. she was, when she was really little. But now that she, I mean, she's eight, so she has this really, I think she has a fairly firm sense of herself. I think, I, I, I don't think that the, the, you know, I, I don't not worry about what she's exposed to, but mm. I think, um, I think she, she has a sense of herself and, a, and she has quite a, I think we've developed quite a, a sophisticated language about gender. So she can say, she can recognize when something is 
fem or feminine and she can use both languages or when, you know, and something is kind of, you know, and she can think through how people have expectations. So I think we've incorporated it into our conversation in a way that's it, where she can recognize my discomfort and then draw her own boundary and say, well, let me just fi- figure this out and I'll let you know. Um, and then if she's talking to kids who may not know, the same language, then she'll find a way to say, I don't like it, and then make a boundary, but in a way that's kind of aware of other people's experiences. I don't know. That makes I mean, sense. That sounds, that sounds incredible. Leanne, is this something you face a lot? Mika is incredible. Okay. Um, You're affirming that. So, yeah, Lerato, um, I'm, I'm as, as you can hear, kind of gender non-conforming in my voice and my appearance as well. People often don't know how to place me mm. in terms of gender, race, Etc. And I, because we are we two women who are parenting, um, Lerato has had the pressure uh, from school and from others around this dad question. Mm. And from a young age, when uh, she'd say introduce me as her dad and sometimes say call me dad, I would just respond to that and be happy to be dad. Uh, so I get Mother's Day cards and Father's Day cards, which is great. And what I've found that she's been she's done is. Um, that she, when she's, uh, depending on who she's with, uh, who she's going to be, go on a play date with, or whether we're going to an LGBTIAQ event, mm. uh, she will experiment and play around with things. So sometimes when, when people are checking in with their preferred pronouns, she would say, I'm, um, he today, or I'm, I'm a they today. And this is not an unusual thing for her. So she experiments broadly. Or with herself, with how she. With herself, yeah. And she also does this with her clothing. So, um, she will introduce herself as a him sometimes. And, uh, none of us freak out. Some of my family freak out. People generally, uh, are overwhelmed by that kind of disruption. But, um, in terms of gender, she's been doing that for a while and she floats between things. And I'm so glad for it. Jeez. It means that she uh, is going to experiment and, do what uh, she feels is necessary. Of course, she'll get flack. Um, I mean, one of the difficulties of raising a child that is uh, has uh, kind of non-normative ideas about a range of things is that when she does come up against uh, other kids who are either older or even parents who disagree, uh, when when she comes back to us, we've got this difficult situation of going like, oh, okay. And the way we've spoken to her about it is uh, we actually um, learned this from a friend of ours whose kids are a bit older mm. is to speak about it in in the guise or using the the phrasing of old ideas versus new ideas mm-hmm. so that you don't you don't make it wrong or evil we just say that these people haven't learned these new ideas yet mm. and so it be- it becomes a way to kind of have the conversation to be able to point out how we differ from other people it's really difficult when you have an outspoken eight-year-old who goes up to a, a Tani and says, listen, yeah, you are wrong. Those are old ideas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's difficult, but yeah. I mean, it's really important. Also, if, if, if kids are going to be experimental and if they're going to push against the kind of problematic boundaries that we have, especially around gender, we actually have to give them the opportunity to, to defend their positions from themselves and not simply mimic what their parents mm. do. And so it's really, it's cool to see a experiment with that. I worry about the times when we're not there. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that's all parents worry, I think. What about for, for yourselves, um, when you're confronted with perhaps family members or friends, um, who don't see any value in challenging some of these gender stereotypes and say, you know, why don't you just let boys be boys, girls be girls? What do you, how do you respond to that criticism and pressure from, you know, loved ones or friends? 
Koketso, do you want to? So I think for myself, I like this that Leanne was describing about yeah. old ways and new ways, right? Because at the same time, you don't want to create a, uh, a situation where there's tension. You yeah. might die tomorrow. Your child's going to live with the very same relatives. So that's the kind of space you're navigating, the reality that anything can happen and change. So what I often find is that it's important for me as much as, you know, I had to also challenge myself when my child back chats an elder, you know, there was always this, you know, for a moment you're like, oh my God, but you have to affirm it. And for me, when that happens, it's important for her to also see me do it, to stand up for the very idea that we've been speaking about, but in a way that does not vilify the other, right? Because bottom line, if I die tomorrow, that very same family member is going to be the one who takes them in. And I need my kids to understand that that's a person who's still stuck in the old ways. Maybe you can help her change, you know? Um, yeah. And I, one aspect that I did find was very interesting with growing ups, right, is the issue around consent. My kids know you're not forced to kiss, touch, hug anybody. I don't care how close they are to our family. It's Mm. always just been a given. And it's been, I think that was the biggest part that got pushed back, you know, because people always expect, people think they can just come and put their mouths on your kids. And Could you explain the situation when when that happened? Yeah, so we... Family gathering or what? So we stay yeah. in Joburg, obviously. Yeah. We don't see our family quite often. So there was a time after we moved and the family mm. came over to come say hello. And I remember one particular uncle of my mother who tried to kiss my child. And my child was like, no, you know, I don't even know you. And you could see the tension in the room. You could feel the tension in the room, you know. But it's important for me for them to know. And I think also at the same time, adults don't realize that kids are their own people in their own right and should be allowed. Allowed to develop their own boundaries in their own right. Guys, we all know about, all families have those uncles. Hey, we have to talk about it more often. I remember the uncles I used to just sidestep. But now with kids where you give them the opportunity and you affirm mm-hmm. with for them that they don't actually need to uh, present themselves in any kind of way to an adult. Simply because they are a kid and the adult is an adult. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, I mean, we, I think... I would have loved a parent who would affir- who would have affirmed that more because everyone jokes and laughs about the uncle who gets mm-hmm. drunk and then smooches you, mm. but actually it's not. <laughs> it's really not okay. Then I saw a strong nod from you on this. Is this something? Yeah, I was like, you I'm like a parent. I don't like uncles. <laughs> no, no. I mean, but I, I think for me, I, I, for, I guess for my daughter because she has me and my sort of fa- my home, and then fifty percent, and then she has her dad mm. and his context, and, and 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 I don't even I can't. I mean, that's like I don't know what happens there. Mm. Um, but but it's but I have no. Con- I mean, I have to concede control, and I think so. Part of it is trust. I mean, I think that she has such interesting ways of managing. Um, everyone's hopes and wills and wishes and expectations in a way where, where her own are at the ground of it. So I want, I mean, I think there might be, um, different kinds of expectations around her gendering and, um, you know, being cute or pretty or being, or, or helping with certain things in the home that are about being a girl. And I think that she, I think I just, I mean, part of me is like, well, how do I give us, how do we have the kind of conversations where, when it's where you, you know, so she'll say, Mama, I want to learn how to cook this and I'll, and it'll be because she's like, well, you do it in a really delicious way. And I also want to learn. And, and then we can talk about cooking in a way that we can then say, move on to a conversation about reading where, where forms of labor, like reproductive labor that she would be taught to be a good girl in, in, in various kinds of context um, are not 
just given. So I, I want her to think about it. I want her to, I, I want to press questions with her, but I, I think I can also trust that she's, wherever she's mobile, that she's able to ask those questions. The other place where I think I, I struggle is with school. It's often my values are <laughs> not necessarily the same values as the context of the school. And it's, and where she can be happy in a school, happy with some things or confront her own battles in the school. So if she's uncomfortable, she can say, but she finds her own language. And so she sometimes will be uncomfortable with me making, you know, interventions. Um, <laughs> because of, you know, <laughs> because she, because she wants, she wants to create space for different kinds of values to, to be able to help, to be held. And so, and, and so I think, this a set of awarenesses around which for me and her as parent and child we we then have an ongoing dialogue about about I guess it's because the way she says, says mommy not everybody sees things the way you do mm. um and I will she says I'll defend the way you see things <laughs> because you know I see them with you what? but she wants to I think she often tries to gather space for to hold everybody else um to hold people's things together and then and then part of I guess what that means is me reinforcing for her and affirming her own boundaries, even with me. So yeah. part of it is that she must also have an implicit um, distrust of me, just like she has one of everyone else. That sounds like a really sophisticated navigation of <laughs> spaces and values by her. Like there's nothing to be trusted. I mean, like, that's me. the first sense I had yeah. when I gave birth to her. I remember thinking even she must even learn that she can't, I can't be, the, I can't, not that I, I can't be trusted because it's a power relation. I'm the parent, she's the child, it's a power relationship. So she can't trust, she can't be, just leave me to do everything even though she is dependent and she mm. must know she's my dependent, mm. but she can't trust me. I mean, that makes, <laughs> that makes me think of one of the things that uh, Kelly and I did from early on. That's your partner, Kelly? My partner, okay. Kelly, yeah. We were, um, uh, we, we said to Lerata that it's basically, her responsibility to make an, a good argument about something. And if her argument is good enough, mm. then she overrules us. And that that's, and as much as one can be democratic and, um, hearing of uh, one's child's visions and desires, one has to try to do that. And that worked when she was fumbling over words. But now as a like seven, eight year old, she's <laughs> making really good arguments that sometimes I wish I could just be the kind of parents who would say, well, it's because I said so. But um, in 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 growing these young young kids uh, for what's what's uh, ahead of us in a very tumultuous South African society, trying to deal with racism, sexism, homophobia, all of it, and the huge class uh, inequalities, I think it's really important that they learn to make good arguments from early on, and, and that we as parents are the ones who will who will struggle f- uh, to to be able to do that. But hopefully, when they leave. And become their own adults It would stand them in good stead in some ways Yeah, I mean, Absolutely, I mean I'm glad that you mentioned The idea of a tumultuous society um, That sometimes is, you know, physically dangerous And you mentioned this with the With the, with the, with the dodgy uncles I suppose And the numerous other people Who mm-hmm. may want to cause harm to your children And are there times where there's And this to everybody, are there times where there's trade-offs Between this idea or this way of parenting may be problematic However, for safety reasons This may just be something I have to do So, you know, just you may have to dress a certain way like this. I know it's problematic. However, I'm just worried for you as my child. Have there been any trade-offs that have come off in terms of safety at all? I think I think one of the things to re- before we even answer yeah. the safety question, the, there's a, there's constant negotiation. Mm. Uh, at least for me, I, I don't think there's a a perfect way to raise a child in terms of what the parental mm. involvement is. So I have a partner. We live together. Coquette's uh, single parenting denies doing 50-50 I think all of these bring a benefit yeah. and a challenge and so for me what happens is that negotiating safety with my partner who's a 
who's raised white middle class who has a sense of safety that's very different mm-hmm. to mine, who grew up on the Cape Flats, who came out of a, pe- uh, a family that was very involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, had a sense of state intervention into my home through the security police from a young age. So for me, I'm much more paranoid than my partner is around safety. And so the negotiation that happens or that has to happen because there are two present uh, partners sometimes mm. make this uh, this questioning and decision a little bit more difficult. But I've always um, maintained that it's really important uh, until uh, my kid is old enough to not only be able to use the words but also physically be able to get out of a situation. We, we've, I'm fairly protective over her. But the freedom, what, I mean, you asked about family and the imposition yeah. of families' uh, discriminatory practices. Uh, you didn't know this, but our kids all play together. And I did not know. For, yeah. for, for me, family is not simply blood family. So mm-hmm. I am, I am, I am relieved to know, uh, that I have a set of friends who have kids who are mm-hmm. not only Lerato's age, some younger, some older, who have similar kinds of values and therefore a, a shared, what I would call safe space, even though you can't keep a kid safe always. And so I feel completely relieved to be able to know that Lerato will go uh, with uh, Danai or go with a friend and that uh, will be largely safe and have to be trust. It's very difficult for me to be trusting in that kind of way because of my paranoia, but because I've chosen family or chosen friends that stand in as more as family. So I would say mm-hmm. that my kid plays probably more with my friend's kids than necessarily with my cousin's kids, mm-hmm. as an example. And at the end of the day, we know it's not just paranoia that you're fearing because the statistics on issues of gender-based violence, um, you know, abuse of young children, just violence in general against against um, young boy and girl child are very, very high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think that that's also important, right? Um, the, thing, the idea that... It's parents are not only the people who have kids. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, when these kids are older, we're all going to have to live with them in a society, you know. So even if you don't have kids, my child could end up making political decisions that are going to affect you. So I think it is important that we see that child protection, this kind of society that we have as one that um, is supportive of parents, of kids in difficult situations. As she spoke, you know, about, you know, teaching a child not to trust you even as a parent. Mm. We know a lot of harm is done to kids by parents themselves. So in a sexual nature, we know it's often men who are involved, right? But the reality is that women are the primary caregivers of the majority of households and women we can be abusive too in the emotional sense in the you know in a variety of other senses so outside of that there needs to be a bigger wider community and i think even for parents themselves you know she's talking about like support structures the support structure we think about city life you know you're gone once upon a time when i where i come from when i had kids i never had to wake up in the morning and think about childcare it was a given i had an entire community who could care for my kids, Mm. you know, which is very, very different from what you experience in Johannesburg. But the implications of the rollback of of social support networks does have an implication on the parent who's raising the child. Do they have enough time to spend with the child if you're at work and so on all the time? Who's teaching your children these values? So it is really, really important that people do come to the party within the friendship circles and even beyond. Absolutely. Um, okay, so I'm just curious, having having a boy child, I'm curious as to whether there's an additional weight um, to navigate the pressures that, that masculinity brings or perhaps even 
an additional weight of saying I want to I want to raise a boy that perhaps is is more progressive that will never fall into the dangers of 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 a lot of us men knowingly and unknowingly perpetrating violence you know later on in life is there an additional weight to that that you you find yourself thinking about or navigating Definitely I think it's so so important that um the kind of behavior you know our children are learning from us all the time you know even when I'm not explicitly teaching by watching mm. me and my own behaviors with male colleagues or other people they are getting something so yeah there is a very deliberate attempt to try and build the kind of man that I do want to see in you know outside in society um we use, I think our house is a house of stories, right? So there's a lot of books. There's a very deliberate, even the movies, this deliberate choices are made. It's mm. important for me, for my son to see, um, black, brown girls as protagonists, you know, to see, you know, the whole idea of boundary setting and so on to understand that, you know, there's this sense of boys will be boys. It's none of that, you know, boys will take responsibility in this house. Um, I mean, even with the dishes. So I will wash the dishes. My daughter will dry and he will pack. So it's important also that even the role, what we do within the house is spread amongst us, not in a way that reinforces the idea of a particular gender should be doing this. Yeah, absolutely. In one of your blogs, you mentioned a time where I think there was a break in at your house and this this idea of how to affirm your children. And I think your, your son specifically was, was sort of challenged in that moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, so my son, some years before the robbery happened, had witnessed a violent scene. And I wasn't actually aware, but the robbery just really brought that back. And after the robbery, I remember, because I sent them to school, because, yeah, the house just needed to be cleaned up. And there was just no ways I was going to function with the kids there. And I... I yeah, I just remember, you know, when they asked me, how was I feeling? You know, we hadn't really spoken about it. And I was planning, what am I going to say? You know, they listened to me. Should I say thank you for being brave? But then it struck me that my kids are going to get an idea that this means they must always be brave. Mm. This means that they cannot break down in a moment of fear, you know. So how do I do it in a way that... So I spoke to a lot of my friends about it because I was just like, before they come to school, I need to have an answer. Oh, so the <laughs> amount of time. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, okay, so how do I do? How do I affirm and thank them and say it was amazing that you reacted the way you reacted, mm. that you listened and that you were able to keep safe, you know. But at the same time to say that you don't have to always be that brave. It's okay to be scared and yeah. It was just quite a difficult thing to negotiate, but in the end, it worked out. I can imagine. I'm curious about race. Um, I know, Leanne, you mentioned just your your upbringing and how it was just such a state intervention was just a thing that you lived with, and mm. race was a thing that you you lived with. Have you talked to your daughter about apartheid um, from a historical sense, or more about racism now? Is that something you guys have talked about? I mean, just to say that uh, we are. What on in in um, Africa would be called a hamors in terms of racial. If you were to look at the constitution of our home, um, I don't identify as coloured, but I grew up culturally on the Cape Flats. Um, my partner's family is white middle class, and Lerato comes from Soweto. So there is no way that we can have a transracial adoption and not deal very explicitly with the question of race. So uh, we've always been open to not only talk 
tool that I talk about um, racism in the current day, but also to be very clear about the history of South Africa with her. So we've always spoken to her about this. She understands. Um, like, how did you do it? I just can't get over like how. Well, how I mean, one start? I'll tell you. Let yeah. me tell you a, a, a little story that isn't specifically related to race, but that, okay. that I think the lesson is similar. Um, one of the, the very good things that the social worker advised us when we adopted her was to uh, make sure that we talk to her about her adoption before she can even understand the words that we're saying because this is a it's a it's mm. you you test it, it's test you you normalizing what people would consider a difficult conversation and fortunately my partner and I have also had to be very upfront and very uh, on it with the question of race because neither of us are superheroes and we mm. also have internalized form. We grew up, we both 76 babies, so we grew up under apartheid and were formed partly by that and me thankfully also by my, um, my family's anti-apartheid, um, struggle okay. uh, or involvement. So we've, we've already been having, we'd already been having the conversation around race before Lerato came into the, the, the question. But obviously when you have a child that you have power over, and our specific makeup is such that she now has uh, one mixed-race parent and one black parent. No one in our extended family looks like her. And this is a really difficult um, question to navigate. And mm. some of the ways that we've tried to deal with that is to ensure that our chosen family doesn't only look – that is not simply high school friends and cousins because then we would just be replicating uh, what our families. Um, historically look like but in addition to that when we make the decisions about schools and and where we live for example uh, we make sure that that is a primary um, it's actually a, the criterion that we use and so Lerato goes to a school that is majority black where she feels like she can see herself everywhere in ways that I think are really important for her so both in the conversations yeah. and the willingness to talk about the, the the baggage and the history, but also what's what's happening. So she she will be able to tell you about if you were to ask her, she'd be able to tell you about Fismas Fall. She'd be able to tell you a bit about decolonization. She'd also tell you why Donald Trump is a problem. And I think we asked the question. Someone said to, actually some kids were talking. A couple, I don't know whose kids it was. They were talking in the back, and I was taxi driving and listening. And someone piped up, "Is Donald Trump worse than Jacob Zuma?" And Lerato's answer was, "Of course, Donald Trump is worse. He's also racist." And then someone was like, but can't Jacob Zuma be racist? And there they go with this conversation. Wow. These are eight-year-olds. I mean, the idea that, the idea that they, ca they can't understand concepts mm. is just nonsense. It's what, you, what you're willing to give yeah. to them and how much space you're willing to create to have these difficult Jeez, conversations. That's incredible. Danai, does Mika identify as black? Yes. Is uh, that, I, <laughs> what I don't do you know. mean? Is that, was it important to you that she yeah. knew you are black and this means something? Was that important to you? Yeah, and I, and I think I, I mean, I want to agree with Leanne. For me, it's like the difficult conversations should be normal. Um, because I think that these kids, they walk in their bodies, they look, exist in this world. Mm. And so they're already experiencing. So I think it's really affirming to give someone language. It took me so long to have the language to explain. I thought I was crazy. It's like, what is happening? <laughs> and so um, to have the language to say, um, the reason things are looking, it's like, what, you know, this week, I mean, they were asked to make a wish for Mandela Day. <laughs> and, and so I like, can make wishes because, you know, justice is a wish. Um, and so she, and she's like, I wish, you know, for that I wish people, we didn't have money. 
um, and so this is what she puts out in there. I wish we didn't have money because money seems to be the root of what some people are on the street and some people don't have. And she, this is the language she used. So I'm like, this is an opportunity. So I pull out the book on Marxism and we talk about it because I wanted to have language to have to guide, you know, to, to sort of supplement her yeah. intuition. She came with intuition and I was like, yes. And she was also, and also, but she was also pointing out, she says, uh, she was trying to, she was saying, it seems like people work Without a relationship to thinking That's the, she, the relationship word she didn't use She said there's something about work and thinking That doesn't seem connected And I was like this makes sense Because you know Das Kapital as we name him now in the house Das Kapital has organized it So that we don't think <laughs> when we work And and money and But also I wanted to think about money As the thing that we exchange between us That makes our life That, that, that dehumanizes okay. Because she was making the connection anyway mm. So here I'm like Here are the concepts that came up in this book And we can talk about it tomorrow And she's like please can we have a six week break and I was like okay <laughs> but I but I, I think complexity is important because I don't and I think normalizing difficult conversations is important because I think that um, you know Mika doesn't Mika doesn't go to majority black school mm. I made the decision because I don't like to drive far <laughs> And also, I'm like, I was like, I don't like to drive fast. She goes to school really close to where we live. Um, but also, actually, part of it was also that I'd gone to all girls schools growing up and I'd found them really extremely difficult for many reasons. But I'd felt particularly affirmed as a girl in terms of, so the minute I went to a, a, a mixed school, I felt, um, I was felt like people didn't expect me to be, to be as excellent as I could be. So there's an attachment that I need to work through to single sex education that I think was part of my decision. Um, but it also means that she's in contexts where those questions come up and maybe if there's no language to say, if your ballet teacher talks about your bum, that's not about your bum. And so I, I want you to have the language to talk about it. So then we can talk about it. And she may not so always. So is that something that happened? It's happened. Yeah. yeah. So they mm. were practicing and I, and I didn't even know, how, I still don't know how to bring it up with yeah. her because I don't think she's, I think for her, she's like, Oh, I, you know, <laughs> she's like, I'm having fun and I don't need to be the best at it. Um, and so it doesn't have to be a difficult thing, but mm. I, but I'm immediately like watching this and I'm thinking, um, and, and I know that if I bring it up, the other parents may not understand what I mean if I'm like, it's a problem. Some, I was talking to one of the moms actually after school yesterday and I mentioned it and she was like, oh yes, eating disorders and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because of course, as you know, children who dance and increasingly there's an idea of what size mm. they should be as they get older. And so she, she, she understood what I meant from the point of view of the size of people who dance. Um, but I was like, but beyond that, there's something, there's a racial connotation to this, tuck your stomach in, tuck your bum in. And, but it seems like I'm making it up if I bring it up. Mm. <laughs> right. So how do I have the conversation with the child without introducing a new problem to her life? But I'm like, but actually this is going to be there. So, but I haven't decided. I haven't, I, I don't know how to, you know, part of me is just like, can I get her involved in another extramural next year? <laughs> and then it can just go away. <laughs> can I just say that Lerato is at an all black school yeah. and there are like a minuscule amount of white kids, mm. but there is still the question around the hair. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing how powerful this kind of white middle class subject is mm. in the imagination and in the, in what, what kids see mm-hmm. as the norm. So it's not that it doesn't come up, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily come up with the same power dynamic. Yeah. And so the relation is different, but you can't, you can't actually get away from it by choosing a particular school. Especially because a lot of, you know, sort of the decent, what people say is decent schools or, or where if you want your kid to get a fair education, even if they are now majority black students, a lot of the staff and the culture mm-hmm. are hangovers from colonial and apartheid eras. Totally. One of the things I'm picking up from all of you though, is that it seems crucial to talk about your children extensively about race, 
so that they can both understand their own identity as well as their the context and the society that they live in. But it reminds me of I can't talk too much about white families in South Africa, um, but at least I grew up middle middle upper class in Melbourne, Australia, and. You know, there's a lot of reasons why white families don't even acknowledge that we're white or talk about race at all. Um, but when I think about just the context over there, but also if we're talking particularly about South Africa now, um, how toxic it can be to ignore these issues mm. and how, how it can only perpetuate many of the challenges we have in our society by sticking your head in the sand. Um, Kukenso, I'm, I'm curious what, 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 what language you guys speak at home? Is it important uh, that they speak multiple languages? Is there a bias to English being in Joburg? How do you navigate that? That's been a huge thing, particularly post school. So since moving to Joburg, when yeah. we stayed in Twane, I mean, everybody spoke it. So we moved to Joburg, <laughs> almost none of my friends, I only just have one friend who speaks to them in Setswana. Yeah. Um, so there's certain things that I do. I've made a, cause of school, Setswana starts when they're in grade four. So right now they can only do Isizulu. But at home, we speak in Setswana. I've had to make a conscious decision. So even this thing of grappling with concepts and whatnot, for me, it's important that they oh, understand so you're, it. Also, you're doing the teaching that you've mentioned, mm-hmm. and you're also trying to make sure that can happen in, in Setswana. Yeah, yeah. So we just talk about yeah. that. Um, we have a lot of reading material. You know, Nali Bali was also, like, really amazing. Um, so... And then another thing is just deliberately they go. Then it's important to me that they go home every holiday, you know, um, to go spend time amongst the life we live in. Joburg is so so different from where I come from. It's important for them, for me, for them to see it, for them to be surrounded by people who speak Setswana all the time, you know. Um, yeah, but particularly after school, I, like when once they start school, I've had to make more of an effort. Yeah, they'll come in and just start speaking, and then I'll be hey, worrying, you know, what you're saying. I can't hear you. Just had to say that. Like, I can't hear you. I don't you. understand. Mm, mm. And it's, it's just a very, very deliberate thing. So one of the rules I have yeah. is you don't correct my children's English. Mm. Um, and for me, that's very important. If you are in our space, you don't do that. I don't send a message to my kids that speaking perfect English is the most important thing for you and your life, right? But it's also recognizing that if you look at the school they are in, the people we hang around with, they are going to speak good English yeah, eventually. It's, it's so good. actually, let's just affirm what they do speak. Let's mm-hmm. affirm their own language. Hey. Liad, I know you don't identify as colored, as you said, but is, is it, is it, is it, I know you wanted your daughter to be surrounded and, and see a lot of people that look like her. Mm-hmm. Is it then important for you that she's then connected to that in bigger ways, like speaking the same language, mm-hmm. like being able to, you know, go to rural homelands? Mm-hmm. Do you create, do you add those additional layers or mm-hmm. do you think seeing it is, is enough? <coughs> no, you see, I mean, one of the things I think uh, Kelly would agree with me on that we're failing, we're not doing as well as we okay. should do is on the language question. So Lerata does get Isisula at school. Uh, Kelly's conversational and I can do basic stuff uh, through courses, but it's not sufficient. Mm. Uh, we're actually going to be moving to Cape Town soon and have agreed that one of the one of the ways to go back to that particular city, which is segregated, problematic yeah. and racist, yeah. is that we actually we have to take uh, more uh, of a role in learning ourselves mm. so that because Lerato has figured out. That English is the power language. Okay. She really doesn't. She's even come home saying she's really excited about Afrikaans. 
So she wants to learn Afrikaans And I'm just like Are you serious? You want to learn Afrikaans? <laughs> I mean I can speak We can both speak yeah, Afrikaans sure can. Second language Because of apartheid And what was forced But um, it's not good enough And she We try to say the words to her That it's really important That you are able to speak A local language um, But for her It just That doesn't It makes no sense to her She's like You're not making the effort you're not making a good mm, enough effort. Why? Sense, yeah. So we have to make that commitment, which is really important. So that's our next hurdle. The na- you mentioned class, or rather Mika mentioned class, and that's mm-hmm. how you brought up, managed to sneak in Marxism gently, which I still don't understand how one does that. Do you go to great efforts to try and position your family class-wise and trying to say we have certain things, other people don't have certain things? And therefore we should feel thankful or Therefore we need to work hard and keep these things Is that something that you um, I do. I mean uh, I, uh, It's more like How do we do the kind of work That we can make The inequality impossible So I think the questions I think uh, I'm asking more radical questions okay. I think I wanted to ask more radical Because I think a lot of the conversations I have at school Are very much like life It's so unfair we should give more money to the poor Oh it's so unfair we, Poor people should somehow be raised up As opposed mm. to asking a structural question So I think you know for example There was um, formerly an abad- uh, abandoned In quotation marks building That's now been made into a private residence For UJ students um, Close to the school And so when the people who used to live there were evicted We had a long conversation about <laughs> You know how how is this connected To exactly the you know where we live And how you know how we are able to be made to live and others. And last night she was she was before she went to bed she started crying and she says to me about the question of safety. She started mm. crying and I sort of was like, wow, wow. but we were doing so well. We, we watched Despicable Me three. <laughs> we had nice up. I didn't know where, where I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> yeah. And um and 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 then she says, Mama, I, she says I've been really I've been holding it in since basically 2015. I'm I'm really afraid at night when I go to bed because I'm scared someone's going to come and break in the house. Um, and I was scared to tell you because I thought you'd be cross. So I was like, why would I be cross? <laughs> anyway, so I need to think about why mm. she would think I would be cross. But, um, but I, but I, but what I was, so, so I'm trying to tell her, you know, I, I'm the adult, so I should worry about our safety. That I, I don't want to say, you know, it's not, you shouldn't worry because there's no reason to worry. But then I also started to talk about like, you know, um, what is crime? So what's the conversation about? How do we think about how crime materializes? How do we think about, um, the structures of inequality that make it so that, you know, a, a friend of ours and her daughter had experienced a robbery quite recently and it was a very little person who ended up breaking into the house. I'm like, how do we think about people who mm. are also little who end up, you know, who end up as criminals? So, the, so, but which is not to say that we should then not be you know, worry or want to protect yourself, but how, how to have all of those conversations in the same space and say, how do we think about a society where, um, where things are not fair? <laughs> you know, and then how do we participate in a society where things are not fair? And inform, and I and I I, I try to avoid because she gets so much of this kind of sugary. The present is great. The past was terrible. Mm. Um, and so much of the. We should be thankful for what we have, and then hope that others have it too. I, I wanted to understand the connections between. Between the two things And understand it as a structural problem And understand that it materializes In our very capacity to have <laughs> And 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 then Not to say then that she, she must be punished But say then what do we do And how do we participate in a world Where we have to ask those questions That's a, that's a big that's a big task um, 
Okay, so have you faced the 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 the, the trade offs that sometimes faces middle income, uh, middle income or middle class families, where it's either you must feel super grateful that you're not living in poverty, or you must you know cling to what we have and work as hard as possible to be really rich. Is that something that you? So I think because of where I'm from, yeah. it's kind of. What my kids, where they come from themselves mm. and where we are now, they can see the difference. You know what I mean? It, it's a given. We live in a house now. Where is they go home and it's, yeah. Um, and then also, cause I'm a single mother, my mm. kids go with me to work events a lot, you know? So my kids have been to Maragana, my kids have been, so they're quite engaged okay, with the kind of things that are going of, on. Yeah. So, um, I do think that the conversation has been, the school has actually been very helpful. Okay. So their school introduced what's called the critical thinking day. So they do, they, it's an effort to try to get kids from different ages with their knowledge from in the school and outside to work together, right? Mm. So the first one they had last year was about how do you solve South Africa's water crisis? And then the other one was about inequality. And I really like that the school does do that kind of thing. Um, right now with the Neisner fires, you remember the Neisner fires? Yeah. There was a lot of conversation about this is how people are responding, but to other tragedies in in mm. black communities, there is no response. Mm. That school has responded to others as well. So it's, yeah, I, I just feel like it supplements what we're trying to do at home. But I do think that also at the same time, I try to do it in a way that also recognizes that my kids should also just be kids. They are kids, yeah. you know. So some things like with the race issue, for me it's about the storybook that shows black protagonists. They are getting the message there. And you can see it now. But I mean, in a way that's still it's a kid and they're still yeah. having fun with it. Yeah. But I remember when I was my children's mm. age, every time I colored people, I'd leave them white and color their hair yellow. My children color people brown and black, you know, so they are getting a message. They are getting a message about black families and blackness and what it could be and, you know, and also what the, the material conditions are for many black people in this, you know, in this country. So I do think it is that negotiation of, um, just also just recognizing that kids should be kids also. Black kids should not always be burdened to have to be like many social justice warriors mm. from when they're kids. Mm. You know, it's like just about knowing this is your life. This is reality. Mm. How do you navigate? What can you do to make a difference? But also how is that a part of just being a child? Mm. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, Leanne, last time we had you on, I think you had just come back from being on the flotilla. And and I, actually how I found out you had you had a daughter is because you mentioned on the way out like it's, that there was a challenge in trying to explain to her why you had gone and why you coming mm. back was such an event. And I'm curious if there's there's just tension there of just contextualizing the work you do, not putting her under pressure to now she must also then be a you know social activist as you mentioned. And is there is there a tension there? I mean the thing is, uh, I continually through through Lerato get to reflect on my own childhood and my my parents' parenting style. I've always felt uh, like I lost a lot of my childhood because of. Uh, not having having a present father and having to be dragged to political meetings yeah. and and uh, rallies and things and obviously there, w- there was a point in my life later on where I was very very grateful for that so I have no doubt mm. she's going to push against this at some point that she's been overexposed to the reality 
that is South Africa, and I always have a conversation with friends who are educational psychologists to talk about this very thing that Coquetto mentions, mm. like how much do you protect your child from the world? Yeah. Like your child needs a sense of safety and security to be able to be confident, but you can't also uh, raise them in a bubble because then when they see the real world, it's a fuck up. Mm. So the thing for me is that um, I worry um, that I uh, that she is exposed to a lot of um, nonsense, but I think the the good thing is that uh, there's a lot of spaces that are outside of mainstream media where people are organizing or creating collectives or thinking. So it's not the, the kind of big fees must fall mm. shutdowns, but the smaller collectives of people who are uh, meeting and thinking through things and arranging art projects and different kinds of things that she also gets exposure to. Yeah. So that form of activism, I think, is useful because she also gets a sense that it's possible to do things even when there's this overwhelming sense of injustice yeah. out there. Uh, but the thing around the class uh, differentials, I mean, Lerato's, uh, we've taken her back to the the children's home where she uh, where we adopted her from. It's she's she gets it, man. It's she knows that this is where she comes from, yeah. and that actually. Coming into our family means that um, things have changed dramatically for her. But, I mean, Lerato is almost the the perfect un- undercover revolutionary agent because I promise <laughs> you, she goes to my dad in Lavender Hill, yeah. which is a violent, problematic neighborhood on the Cape Flats. And she changes the way she speaks English mm-hmm. and she knows what's going on. She goes to middle class West Coast, Oregon, where my my partner's family is from in the U.S., and she the the she can fit in there. She can fit in in a range of different places. And we also, um, I mean, Joe. The the good thing about Joburg, which I'm worried about not having as much access to in Cape Town, is that in Johannesburg, people have a sense of ownership of the city, regardless of where they live in it. So, we've really been able to uh, nurture friendships with people from across mm. the class, race, sexuality spectrum, which has been really useful and people who are confidently understanding their position in a, in terms of the structural conditions that exist and for her to have access and for us to have access mm. to that has been really useful. Again, coming back to this point of we can't teach her everything by telling her what's going on. Yeah. It's actually choosing uh, diverse and difficult relationships, friendships and situations that will create those learning opportunities for her. So she knows very well what's happening. It sounds like it, and mm. I think something that's come from across from everybody is that there's a, when you allow it, there's a real sophistic, sophistication and understanding of complex ideas that can, can happen when exposed to and when allowed. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I'd like to say a deep thank you to all of you. I know the, the family and the child is a really personal thing, so I, I thank you for, you know, being open to coming on and, and speaking about something so personal and being open around what you're grappling with, what's working really great, what's still not, not quite there yet. And yeah, it's a massive thank you. Like I said, probably just a start to the conversation and I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll continue this, maybe have the, the kids on in a few years, but it's just a thank you. Danaimo Potza, Koketsu Moeti, Liam Naidu, massive thank you to all of you. Okay. Everybody tuning in, this is the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. Please download and share the podcast. And as always, we look forward to hearing from you on Twitter. Thank you. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.